questions on Genesis 14? Who will go first? Yes. Uh, I, I, I do tend to lean to the, the interpretation of Melchizedek being uh, Christ. Yes. Being a uh, but one of the arguments against it, why not in Hebrews just, instead of saying in, in resemblance or assembling or like unto Christ, why not just say? Why not just say? Yeah. That's a good question. Why didn't he just say it? Because I think most people who don't take that interpretation, again, take in, in reading, I think the case is pretty good there, but just that it's speaking of Melchizedek being a type of Christ, a yes. picture of Christ. In verses 3 and 15, yeah. that was my question. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I would say. Where in the New Testament does it actually say this is a type of Christ? And I can only, I, I can only think of one explicit one, which is Romans 5. R Romans 5. Otherwise, we don't have explicit statements. It's 5.14. Romans 5.14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. Who is a type of him who was to come. So the word type or shadow illustration, that's the only time I, I can think of that the New Testament says this is a type of Christ. Otherwise, the way that it's expressed, whatever is said, it's assumed that that's the case. Even in, in Colossians 2, which does say, and in Hebrews 10, which does say, shadow, uh, it uses the word shadow in there, it does make a comparison, but it doesn't say it in every case. Uh, an, another case where it doesn't say it is 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is our Passover. Right. It doesn't say the Passover was a type of Christ or a shadow of Christ, it simply says Christ is our Passover. And we're supposed to conclude that the Passover feast, the sacrificial lamb, is a type of Christ. So well, would, the Bible doesn't always say it, is my answer. Well, would you say, though, in the text, in verse 3 and 15, that that, that resemblance or like unto, that that's using language of something that's a picture of it, not the exact thing? Okay, yes. Okay, that's another one. Yes, in verse... Verse 3, Hebrews 7, 3, it says, But made like the Son of God, the word like. And in verse 15, um, according to the likeness of Melchizedek. Now, is the, would we not say that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was a type of Christ or is a type of Christ? Being our light, our to, to lead us along the way, he's the light of the world. Okay, so the cloud we could say is a likeness of Christ, but who was in the cloud? Christ, Christ was in the cloud. So in a sense, you could say that the type could be Christ, and you could say likeness like the Son of God or 
likeness of Melchizedek. In the likeness or in the comparison, whatever the cloud represented, the pillar of cloud represented, whatever is there, there is a comparison to the actual incarnation and person and work of Christ. But that does not exclude the possibility that the cloud contained Christ or Christ was in the cloud. And I would say the same with uh, the person Melchizedek. The rock was Christ, yes. First Corinthians ten four. And what about the rock? The what, what what did you mean by citing that? In what way does it fit? What do you mean? Well, the rock was Christ. They drank of that rock. I think it has to be a type. Okay, it's like cloud and fire. You're saying the pillar. Of, okay, yes, the rock was Christ. First Corinthians ten four says that. So the rock is compared to Christ, but the rock is also Christ. Correct? Yeah. That's your point. Yes. So that's the answer I would give to Hebrews 7, 3, and 15, which uses the word like or likeness. Same use as the... It could, be, it could still fit. Yeah. yeah, it could still fit. His rock, his rock is the first time Jesus comes, you get to hit him. After he comes, you want water and you have to speak to him. Nobody's ever going to hit Jesus again. Was that all? Okay. Next. Yeah. The uh, well, just it. Uh, when I was when you're reading this, the, uh, the contrast between how you have the immediate blessing of Abraham by Melchizedek and how that would have been a real high point uh, for his life, worship, seeing this, and then immediately there's the temptation and the testing that comes yeah. with the king of Sodom. Uh, and having to even deal with his presence uh, being there. So anyway, just a reminder of that constant warfare or the pulling between the two that will be true for all you know all believers, that, that we have these glimpses and moments of God's favor and his blessing, yet at the same time in this present life, we still have to deal with sin, temptation, ungodly people, this type of stuff, and it's always in our face. Yes. Okay. So this exchange or alternation between blessing and cursing or good things happening and bad things happening to us. Actually, I I neglected to mention that in chapter 14, it's preceded by the end of chapter 13, where God renews the promise to Abraham. And he tells him what all he and his descendants will inherit. So God told him something good and then something bad happens at the beginning of the next chapter. But before the good of the end of chapter 13, we have the bad of chapter 13. Abraham and Lot have to separate. So they separate, that's something bad. Then the good, the good promises of God in 13, 14 to 18, and then chapter 14 comes, there's something bad again. And then after the bad, there's the good, he meets Melchizedek. And then there's the bad that he's got to deal with the king of Sodom. That's the way of the Christian life. It's always this back and forth. Yes. You just have to deal with it. That, and then also was thinking about um, with this king of Sodom. So here he has Lot, who's living close to him or in this contact or proximity to him in these cities. But then he also sees the favor of God upon Abraham and that Abraham was able to 
And he benefited greatly from Abraham. And it appears that he was there with Melchizedek as well. And yet he still remains a wicked, a wicked man. Oh, yeah, that's a good observation. You know, he doesn't repent. He doesn't repent. And, and their wickedness is so great that God eventually destroys them in a pretty brief amount of time. Yeah. But then also, I, I was thinking about Abraham's, um, what he said to him would have been very offensive as well. Yeah. That I'm not going to take anything from you because you're so, uh, I don't want any association with you because you're such a wicked man. Okay. So all, all those things are, are there. Um, in just the way he interacts with him. You're saying it matters who funds you? Yeah, yeah, yes, it matters who funds you. Yeah, and he wasn't like, you know, you think of Achan and uh, Gehazi, these men who had great wealth put before them, and they couldn't restrain themselves because they were so covetous, and they took what they shouldn't. But Abraham had made a commitment even beforehand, like Job, with him not not going to gaze at a, a, a young woman. So Abraham had already met. You, you just see how steadfast he was in his faithfulness to God, his desire to live a godly and a righteous life. Hmm. And that even when great wealth was in front of him, he he didn't want anything to do with it because of the association with a godless man. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it is so different than what you see so often in our own day. Yes. Where people will take money from whomever will give it. So just to further comment on those two points, the last one, um, that he, Abraham had the courage to tell the king of Sodom what he needed to hear, what he should hear. You are a wicked man, I don't want to associate with you, and I don't want you to say that you enriched me, and I'm not going to keep uh, or take uh, more than I want or need or have sworn to God, I'm not going to do any of that. So that's the way a prophet is. That's the yeah. way... That's the way a righteous man is. Not just a prophet, but righteous men behave that way. Um, there are many examples of this in the Bible. Uh, one example that I read recently was Ezekiel 20, where the, the elders, some of the elders of Israel come and they approach Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel 20, verse 1. Ezekiel 20, verse 1. Now it came about in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Now these are not like the king of Sodom. They are actually coming to inquire of the word of the Lord. So presumably it is better, but not really. Verse 2, And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you, you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know the abominations of their fathers. Yeah. And the rest of the chapter is a recollection of all of the sins of the ancestors, yeah. of these elders who refused to repent. All he does is say, why, why are you here talking to me? You want a word from why are you? I'm going to just tell you all your sins. Well, that's, that's what he does. He that's what he needed to hear. <laughs> so Abraham or Ezekiel and even us as Christians, we're supposed to speak the truth. Yeah. We're always supposed to speak the truth. Speak the truth in love. First, uh, or Ephesians 4, 15 teaches us to do so. But the truth needs to be spoken. 
Pastors need to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict or reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. As Paul says in Titus 1, 9 and following, 9 to 16. So we're supposed to do that. That's the way the Christian life is. Tell the truth. Don't be a worthless physician who won't tell the cancer patient that he has cancer. Don't be like that. We have to tell them what their spiritual cancer is. Then the other point you made was um, the king of Sodom heard the truth from Abraham. He knew where he could get the truth. He saw the life of Abraham. He saw the commitment of Abraham who swore an oath and was not willing to renege on his oath to God. Yet he didn't repent. Right. Yes. Pharaoh in Egypt confronted by Moses, refused to repent. Judas Iscariot, among the twelve disciples, heard everything he needed to hear for at least three and a half years, and he refused to repent. This is the way of the wicked heart. In in contrast to that, when uh, Melchizedek was speaking to Abram uh, and saying, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, it made me think of Psalm 1 where uh, the attitude of the blessed one uh, is um, expounded on and, and it, it caused me to think that this uh, blessedness wasn't just uh, something pronounced, it was an evidence of the unity between Abraham and Melchizedek and the Savior. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that the, the righteous life is a life that meditates on the Word of God and lives according to it and produces fruit that the Word of God expects. And there's a difference between the way the righteous man lives and the wicked man lives. Yes, Psalm 1. You know, the question you asked earlier about his deal, why didn't he say who Melchizedek was simply, you know, whatever. Well, the whole book is about Jesus. Yeah. The whole book is about Jesus. There's nothing in the Bible that isn't about Jesus. That's the simplest way to look at it. Whatever he's revealing, he's revealing Christ. And whenever he reveals Christ in us, he has to reveal what we have to be willing to change. If you hear a message from God in church tomorrow, there's going to be something said that God wants to change in you because of your imperfections, and he's trying to get you ready to live in his perfection. And so we have to be willing to change. The hardest thing about leading a church is their inability and refusal to change. Thank you. I was just jumping ahead a little bit to 18 and 19, but at this point, uh, Abraham has shown himself, you know, willing to separate, keep himself distinct from Sodom for good reasons. He's not keeping himself from talking to Sodom. He tells them the truth, but he doesn't. <coughs> he doesn't let them put their stamp on him. Yes. And so what does this leave him to be able to do? It leaves him in the position to be able to stand before God and intercede for them. Like, he's not owned by them, so he can stand before God as a mediator and intercede for their behalf. He begged God time and time again not to do away with Sodom for the count of, you know, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous. And so it left him in that position to be able to do that. Now, Lot is a righteous man, but he lives in Sodom. He has Sodom stamped on him. It bothers him. 
but he is there. And we find him in chapter 19 sitting in the gates. The angels find him in the gates. And it's the elders of the city that are in the gates. Um, Lot is in the gates of the city because he is he has gotten himself to a position where he is a leader in Sodom. So, but Lot's still a righteous man. Peter says that. But he's got himself in a position of leadership. So, why is he there? It's my sense that he's there because he wants to be a good influence, maybe. Maybe he wants to have that moment where he can say, okay, guys, you know, we really ought to do this instead. The moment comes when all the men of Sodom surround his house and are demanding that he throw the men, who are angels, but throw the men out there so they can rape them. This is the moment he has to do the right thing and to call the, the, the people to repentance that he has done so much to try to get their approval. And when he says what he says, which is not very good, because he's morally compromised in how he thinks about sexual things, they say, who is this? Who are you but a foreigner trying to tell us what to do? And uh, anyway, I just mentioned that because at this point, back here in chapter 14, Abraham makes the right decision because it's a very sad tale of Lot. Do everything he can to gain influence and gain respect from Sodom. And when the time comes for him to do something with that, all that stuff he's earned from them, he's got nothing left. And I think it's a sad tale that it can be terrible for the church. You know, we can rise ourselves to the highest level of influence in Sodom, but who has who has the impact? It was Abraham who could intercede before God. Lot didn't have anything left. Yeah. Um, Abraham didn't didn't mingle as much as Lot did with the Sodomites. And he, he prayed and interceded on their behalf. Um, what do you mean by he, by, by doing that, he was in a position to pray for them? What did, what did you mean by that? Um, Abraham was in a position to, uh, he, had, he already had uh, kept himself separate. He said, I don't want, I don't want anyone to slot them off, you know, they need to do it. That when God tells Abraham what he's going to do, um, he does that, number one, because of the pattern of Abraham's life, by the grace of God, which is who he is, and it's exhibited here. But God tells, uh, God tells Abraham what he's going to do to Sodom. And so Abraham is then pleading uh, for Sodom to be spared if he can find these ten righteous there. But uh, Abraham by remaining on the outside, though he's still, you know, he still mingles with them, he still interacts with them, he knows you know, who they are. Um, I think he's in a position to properly intercede for them. Because it's, it's not, um, he's not in the position of Lot who refused to leave the city. Right? Um, the angels have dragged him out. Um, well, I see that Abraham, um, whether he mingles with him like Lot or not, he does the right thing to pray for their for their safety and salvation. And whether he's Abraham or whether it's an Abraham or a Lot, both of them should have and would have likely prayed for their salvation and, and uh, preached the gospel to them. Um, and, and even in Lot's case, uh, he does tell them openly, um, please 
my brothers, do not act wickedly. Yeah, he does recognize that they're sinning, and he has the courage enough to do that. Yeah, absolutely, he, he does say that. Um, but then my point is, how do they view him? Here's a guy yeah. who... Who's, to who's no avail. He to... spent time with him, he's gone through all their ups and downs, he was exiled with them and brought back with them. Yeah. He's been with them in the trenches. Yeah. These are his, people, these are his yeah. fellow neighbors. Yeah, so to no avail which is an example of how we might rise, we might be respected enough among wicked people for them to give us authority, like with Lot. But ultimately, when they want their way, all of that doesn't matter. They'll undermine you and say, who made you a judge or arbiter over us? That's what they'll do. That's what wicked people will do. So it'll all come to nothing. Except on the day of judgment, their punishment will be more severe because they knew better but did not believe. Yeah. I think, uh, a question in the back? Yeah. So, uh, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, he was referring to this Melchizedek incident? Okay, in the book of John, when Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see his day, this is uh, John 8... John eight fifty six. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Your question is, is he referring to this incident with Melchizedek? Well, depending on if Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ, but there are other examples in the book of Genesis where clearly Abraham did see God or did talk to God. He did interact with God. Whether or not the Melchizedekian one is one example of it, we don't know for sure, but there were other examples of it. Um, Just to give a couple of those. The, uh, one of them is Genesis 17. Genesis 17, 1. 17, 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. The Lord appeared and said. And then after this discourse, verse 22, 17, 22. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. That means he descended to speak to Abraham, and then he left Abraham, he went up. That's 17.1. And then another example is the three men who come to see Abraham and Sarah in chapter 18, 18.1. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when it says the Lord appeared, the next verse says three men appeared. And among the three men, one of them is called the Lord. The Lord. Example, verse 13, 18, 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? The Lord said to him that. And then two of those three men are angels, created being angels. Verse 21. 
he says, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. He says he will go down. But before he goes down, verse 22, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Right. This, this is the account when he petitions the Lord to spare Sodom. And then 19, verse 1, says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. The two angels are two of the three men who turned away from there and went towards Sodom, 18.22. And the one man was the Lord standing there talking to Abraham about sparing Sodom and Gomorrah or not. And then 19, chapter 19.24. When it is time to destroy Sodom, 19.24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The Lord who went to Sodom rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So the Lord is there on the earth at Sodom and the other Lord is in heaven. The one calls on the other to bring down the fire and brimstone. So, so all of those, it would say he had some sort of green yeah, all of those are pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Um, the principle, basic principle, is John 1.18. John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, or only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He, Christ, has explained the Father. At any time in history, whenever God manifests himself in physical form among men, it is Christ. Yes. Whether before his incarnation, during his incarnation, it's only Christ. Which goes back to the other earlier comment that all of the Bible is about Christ in one way or another. Whether it's a typology or whether it's a prophecy or whether it's a pre-incarnate appearance, all of the Bible is about Christ. Okay. I just started, one of the tensions is this is for all of us, I think, as you read this, and you can look at all these words and people say, My, I don't understand any of this. But the Bible says that the faith the, the just shall live by faith. And one of the basic tenets about God is that you'll never understand it. You'll never totally understand it, be able to explain it, and you have to live with the peace that he is in charge and he's got all the answers and he's not going to tell you everything or you'd be living by knowledge and not by faith. And that's not going to happen. And so, you know, I, it's the fact is, it's like I was reading the other day about Jonah. Jonah was right. Those people should have been killed. 150 years later in the back of the book of Nahum, he does finally blow up Nineveh. And you know, it doesn't, but none of that makes sense to us. But the tension is, is resting in the assurance that God is God. God has all the answers. And just walking in relationship with Him and trusting Him, unless you become like a little child. Little child doesn't understand Siri. Little child doesn't understand where daddy's going. Little child just has to get in the car and go and trust God. And that's simplistic. But really, what I find is like the people in the New Testament. 
and especially the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were not confounded with the theological depth of Jesus' message. They were confounded by the theological simplicity of Jesus' message. They had made it complicated, where they had to become indispensable to the people. They had made all the rules and made it so complicated for their benefit. But God, Jesus comes, and he's very simple, and it angers them. And that's what I find today is that we seem that it's a dangerous thing I've learned in my life to get too smart. It's dangerous to get too smart. Then I begin to rely on my brain and I don't become faith because I've got all the answers or I think I have all the answers. Yeah. Well, a few scriptures on that. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons that we may observe all the words of this law. Whatever is revealed, we need to know. And why do we need to know? 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We need to handle accurately the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.7 Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Everything He wants us to know, revealed in His word, God will give us understanding as we depend on Him. But otherwise, we're never going to be omniscient. Even in eternity, we will never be omniscient. Otherwise, we would be a god. And then the Mormons would be right, and the Hindus would be right, <laughs> and the Buddhists would be right. No, that's not going to happen. Praise the Lord. Someone else? Yes. Back to the lot. I've always said the only thing that you can accomplish by struggling with fence is to rip your britches. Well, I, is, was Lot straddling the fence? Was, was, he, was he so double-minded and a straddler? Was he that kind of a man throughout his life? Was he, does the Bible describe him as such? Is that the case? And I, I conclude that he was not that way. Not that he was perfect, he needed to be redeemed and everything like that. But was he such a double-minded man that he wasn't righteous? You well, see, I think you can do that without realizing that's what you're doing. Without realizing, you do it with good intentions and make a real wonder. Well, I, I don't know. Lot offered both of his daughters for the men of Sodom to rape, so someone did that in my church to be excommunicated. <laughs> that's pretty compromised. And then he slept with his daughters. Well. I got drunk, but yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's, that's pretty compromised. When you do that, when you think of the Bible option, that's not righteousness. Like, he may be a righteous man, but if he thinks of the Bible option, he's compromised. Because he didn't say, um, you know, you all go away now, period. He said, oh, here's an option. That shouldn't even be an option. That shouldn't be even on the books. Why did he say that? There, that's some level of compromise. I'm not saying he's but Peter was wrong. Obviously, Lot was a righteous man. But there, there is compromise there. There is some degree of pollution there that, that the Bible wants us to look upon unfavorably. Well, it depends on how unfavorably that the Bible wants us to look upon that because they, they were angels. And it is a greater offense 
to offend or sin against an angel than a, a human because of their status. So he understood that. So he was protecting the angels from that kind of violation. That's one. Number two, I don't think his daughters were believers. His sons-in-law, his sons-in-law thought he was joking about the destruction of the city. And then the daughters behaved in the way they did later in the chapter. I don't think that they were believers. He, he saw something that was ignoble in his daughters that that's why that option was probably in his mind. And then thirdly, yes, right now in a, in a safe and bland situation, we would say this is what we ought to do. And we do need to be that way. And we do need to develop courage when the situation is not a bad situation. Develop courage constantly. But then when that situation arises, what will we actually do? So, And in that case, I can grant that he could have just said, no, I'm not going to do it at all. No, nothing. You know, uh, kill me or something like that. He could have said that. But he probably thought that these men might be pacified by this lesser uh, sin uh, about violating his daughters rather than the angels. See, my argument there would be when, when you put yourself in that position, then you're going to have to make choices like that. Yeah. And uh, when he gets there with ignorant good intentions, is what I'd say. And then, then he's really in a spot. Is he, is he going to defend the angels? which, as you say, was probably the right thing to do. But look how he's going to have to do it. There's no justifying that. I don't care what you say. Well, if he had not been in Sodom at all, if he had not... Put yourself in a mess when you compromise. I don't care how you compromise or why or how much you know or how much ignorance is is there. It's a good thing to stay away from. Yes. Well, then if, if we stand... So now that we're talking about how much do we need to separate... How, what's, what does the Bible give as concrete examples of the kind of separation that's necessary? What about Daniel the prophet? Did he compromise? Should he not? Because high officials, somebody was just telling me today earlier that it's inevitable that a politician is going to compromise constantly every day of his political life because of the nature of politics being a, uh, a business of compromise. That it's inevitable. So that means a politician in his actual duty is going to be sinning every day. In the carrying out of his duty, he's sinning every day. So did Daniel sin every day in egregious ways? Did Joseph in Egypt sin every day in egregious ways? That's my, my question. They didn't compromise. How do we know they didn't? Yeah, the Bible doesn't tell us that they did. That's true in the case of Joseph. Except he did say, where, where are my, uh, where's, where's my cup of divination? What was that? But the place that you get into compromise is where most church members are. That he chose to go to Sodom because of materialistic wants. He looked at the most advantageous place of his world and said, I'm going there. Yeah. And, and Abraham went to the barren place, the place that nobody chose, where he could be alone with God. And, and we're compromised the position we are. First of all, if you go back to the book of Genesis, God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of good and evil. 
We measure everything in the world today as good or evil. God measures things as righteous or unrighteous. Many things we label as evil is righteous in the hands of God. Kill everything, chickens, men, women, boys, girls. That would be considered an evil decision, but it was a righteous decision because it was God's will. And that's where we come to the point. But Jesus in the New Testament tells the church to come out, but then he says, I'm sending you in to live such an example, not to preach, but to live, live where they can see Jesus. And you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted, and I'm sending you as lambs amongst wolves. And so, you know, are you going to compromise that position and so forth? And one thing that the church became an axe was an isolated community. They, were, they, they took care of themselves. They lived as an independent unit in that city. They took care of one another. They fed one another. They housed one another and so forth. The church today is depending on the world to take care of them, not God and fellow believers. That's where we're in trouble is because we have not come out from the world. We are just dependent on the world system just like the, just like the world. And we're, we are his children. God has said, unless you become like a little child, you cannot, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's, it behooves us that if that brother over there, I don't even know him, said I need money and he has a need, he doesn't need to go to the bank. He, we need to help him meet his needs as a church. And that's what the church is all about, is to be a separate entity in this sinful world and lift up Jesus by how we live. And because of that, we're going to be hated because we're not going to compromise when it comes to the gay rights agenda <laughs> and so forth. We're going to stand up and say that's wrong and then we're going to be hated and we're going to be persecuted. Okay, back to Abraham and Lot though. Um, people impugn Lot by saying he went to the Fertile Valley and yet the text of Scripture does not impugn him. It does not say, and, and when he did so, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or, Abraham, or uh, Lot had an evil desire and he wanted to live near Sodom or, or anything like that. It doesn't actually say that. So for us to conclude that, we have to be very careful and see if it's justifiable. Now, if we were to read the book of Genesis, would we say with Peter the following words? No. If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's 2 Peter 2, 6 to 9. Um, or eight, 7 to 9. So that's what Peter says. But how did Peter know? And I know he could have known because he was an apostle and he has the authoritative Holy Spirit inspired interpretation of Genesis. But did he not expect us to know the same essentially from the book of Genesis? Otherwise, how would he come up with a novel way or so much more information that he's going to convince his hearers who know what is written in the book of Genesis. He cannot say anything to contradict what's in Genesis. Right. 
Peter. He would not because he's inspired. But he could not because then it would be a contradiction and it would be unconvincing to his hearers. Now, in the same way, what about Abraham? Was Abraham sinning grossly in the various incidents of his life? Could you name, just call out, some of the incidents that are commonly understood to be sinful decisions and practices of Abraham's life? Giving your wife to be a concubine. Wife? Giving your wife to the man that wants to marry your wife, telling her he's... he's Sarah, Sarah, telling, okay, telling telling those kings that Sarah was uh, his sister. That's a half truth. Sarah was his sister. Okay, that's, he did that twice. What else? Polygamy. Polygamy, he had, who else? Hagar and Keturah. Well, I think Hagar was gone and Sarah was dead and married Keturah. Well, maybe, maybe that was the case, but it depends on the chronology and the number of children that Keturah have. The majority of commentators think it was earlier in his life. So sending Hagar out of the to die with the baby. He sent Hagar out to die with, and actually Isaac wasn't a baby. I mean, I'm sorry, Ishmael wasn't a baby. However, he was. Yeah. Okay. So that's considered a sin in Abraham's life. What else? Even going to Egypt during the famine, people will say it was a sin. Going to Egypt? He doesn't have any trust in God. He doesn't trust in God. Going down there. Yeah. Yeah. They say that was a sin. Anything more? Okay. Now, if these were all of his sins, are any of these light sins? Or are these very severe? Are they all severe, heavy, weighty Sins or were they light sins? Now, I'm making this distinction and just um, the reason I'm making a distinction between egregious sins and lesser sins or major sins and minor sins because Jesus spoke that way in Matthew 23, 23. He spoke of the weightier provisions of the law and Jesus said in, in John 19, 11, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. And he said in Matthew 11, 20-24, that it'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than for those cities, those cities where Jesus performed his miracles. So in that sense, there is a distinction between heavier and lighter sins, or weightier and lighter sins, uh, greater and lesser sins, okay? In that sense. All sin produces death, but there's a different weight attached to certain sins. Now, those sins that we just brainstormed about Abraham, are those in the lighter category or not? Yes or no? But does... Uh, First, yes or no? Yes. Sin with yes. Bathsheba yes. outweigh all of the sins you've just um, enumerated about Abraham? I mean, he committed adultery and murdered... Yeah, David committed adultery and he murdered and deceived. But he was forgiven. He was forgiven. Okay. But with Abraham... The answer to your question is yes. They're probably considered in today's world the lighter sin. Lighter or heavy? No, I would... For most people, they would consider it lighter sin. No, no, biblically biblically speaking, as people in the church interpret the Bible, what do they think? They'll say they're heavy, weighty sins, right, right. severe. Right. We would never do it. 
we would never do that. And 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 that they the and that these sins and these sins show that he wavered in the faith, that he did not have full assurance, that he. That's the conclusion that people reach. But what about our sin? But before we get there, before we get there, before we get there, now, Romans 4, Romans 4, 18, Romans 4, 18, in hope against hope, he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be, and without becoming weak in faith. He contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform." Why is it, or how is it that the Apostle Paul could say this about Abraham if all of these sins that we enumerated are sins and are gross sins? Something's amiss. Something is amiss, and and I'm challenging you all to to deal with these passages and for for us to come to a conclusion. We sometimes try to figure out how God is going to keep his promises and give him a little help. Isn't that what Abraham was doing? But my question is, was it a severe sin? Yes. Yes. But Paul says they weren't severe sins. If they were sins, they weren't severe. If they were sins, they were not severe. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in in faith. He grew strong, so there was a growth in this, there was a progression in faith in Abraham's life. So... Paul's not saying that Abraham did not sin with, in, with respect to Hagar. In fact, he says he did, that it was of the flesh, not of the spirit in Galatians. So he uses that very clearly. But, but him saying that Hagar, that Abraham uh, sinned by giving into the flesh with Hagar, that that corresponds and is in the same life as the one who's growing growing stronger in the faith with God. So he's not saying that the, the growth of faith in a person's life is the absence of sin. Or gross sin. Or gross sin, right. But that there is, that there is, um, he's not saying that the man of faith is perfect, but he, he's, he's demonstrating that he was, uh, that by the grace of God, you know, Abraham was kept strong and growing strong and heading in the right direction. Unto the point where you know he's 100 years old and sleeping with Sarah, so he can have a son. I mean, that takes a lot of faith. I mean, so obviously he's going through the whole thing, believing the promises of God. Um, and and so if if the point is that here is Lot, and he is righteous even though he sins, obviously yes, that that is true. Um, I would just hate for if there would be any misunderstanding. Um, about Lot offering up his daughters to be raped as something um, that is uh, consistent with a righteous life. Does that make sense? I would hate to call that righteousness, and I would 
be burned at the stake before I did. Well, back to Abraham. In, in this passage, I don't know if, if we say that those sins of Abraham, if they are considered sins, are gross sins, severe sins. I don't see how Paul could say what he said in Romans 4, 18 to 21. How could he make such statements? In hope against hope, without becoming weak in faith. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Which would mean he grossly sinned those two times with Sarah. He grossly sinned with Hagar and Keturah. He, he grossly sinned by leaving the land of Egypt. I'm sorry, leaving the land of Canaan for Egypt and, and Philistia. Because he was not trusting the promise of God. Mm-hmm. And, and also, yes. also Genesis 26, 5, that says that Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Right. So in the Old Testament itself, it pronounces him as being faithful. No, not perfectly, of course, but that, that would seem to kind of rule out any egregious failures. That's what my question is. Are those failures or sins egregious? Are they? With David, it also says that he was righteous, but it always qualifies it, but not in regard to Bathsheba. So yeah. it does bring that out. And in this, these passages, it doesn't say that Abraham sinned, nor does it say that Lot sinned. So the other danger would be, do we have a place to call unrighteous someone that the Bible calls righteous? That that should be a... a caution and a danger as well. No doubt. That we should be wary of doing, especially when you're dealing with prophets like Abraham. I don't know if it says a lot was a prophet, but 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 you do have men who the Bible makes a certain declaration about. So if the Bible itself, which doesn't hesitate to call the heroes of the faith sinners when they sin, like in the case with David and in the cases of others as well, it will say that they, like Moses, that he sinned at this point, uh, but it doesn't say that there. So, it, to me, it seems like it would be better to give them a favorable interpretation. But you know, thing is, let me can I bring it up to date? You know, we are debating today sexual abuse of the church. This don't all go high and whatever, and we have somehow elevated a pedophile to be the worst person in all the world, almost unredeemed. And whatever. And my question is, I ask a group of preachers I've spoke to this week, what happens if the pedophile repents? What happens if the pedophile comes to the cross and says, Lord Jesus, forgive me? And so forth. We have a conundrum, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, that well, what are we going to well, do? Well, there's no doubt that and, repentance... And, and see, but the thing yeah. is, is but, but whoever wrote Hebrews, and I don't know who wrote Hebrews, he says something interesting. Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings... You do not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. These men lived under the law, Abraham and and whatever, and they were being obedient to the law. But the only sacrifice that God found acceptable was the Lamb of God on the cross. It was the only sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. Sacrificing all the books and all the things like this was not even acceptable, although commanded by God. And I think we run a danger to understand, as this brother said over here, our sins 
may be minuscule in the eyes of the world, but they still will take us to hell. Oh yeah, they well, still will take us to hell. Oh yeah, certainly. So, Eat, eating know, eating what, from one tree, just taking the fruit from the wrong tree, sent everybody to hell. That's right. Or sentenced everybody to hell. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not saying that a minor sin doesn't produce death. We're of course, but we're no. But I'm not saying we're saying that. But I'm living in a culture that the world and some of the church that claim to be the church is saying that. If no, you're what, very, what, very careful to analyze yeah. what's going on in the world, you're seeing a very minimization of sin. You're seeing people say that if homosexuals do this, they can stay homosexual. And, 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 that, and the church is being pushed into a position it's going to have to stand up or compromise. And that's the time we live in. While we, we ponder these awesome questions about Lot, we ourselves are faced with the same conundrum yeah. that Lot was faced with. Yeah. Okay, a couple more comments, and then we're over time already. So uh, over here, you haven't spoken yet. That's why we can't be judged by our righteousness. We have to be judged by the righteousness that a sovereign God who elected these people to salvation imputed righteousness. Right? You can't, you can't. It's not the righteousness that we have in our own life, it's the righteousness of Christ that causes us to that stand. That righteousness here. never changes for our position with God. Now we can, we can argue about was he, did he sin, did he not sin, but it's God's business who he wants to make righteous. Correct. It is God's business who he wants to make righteous by the righteousness of Christ, by faith in Christ, that alone. But we still are asking, what can we categorize as sin and what can we not categorize as sin? This is always the question for every generation. What does the Bible consider a sin and what does it not consider a sin? And how are we going to look at Abraham and Sarah and others as examples or not as examples? Because the Bible does put them forth as examples, as uh, those who preceded us in the faith. That's the question we're trying to answer. Well, the Bible, the Bible has given us the final verdict on these people. And I found that growth in faith is two steps forward and one step back. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but if you keep on growing, then you've got the real thing, and eventually you're righteous, but it all comes back because of Christ. Yes. Of, and then whatever righteousness you had in your life is cooperating with the power of the Spirit of God, but it's still grace. Yes. And if, if you want to know all my secrets, uh, I'm not going to tell you everything I know. <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to prepare myself to Abraham and say, ha ha, I'll beat you, boy. Yes. The problem, though, is that people in the church use Abraham and others in wrong ways. No doubt. They, they use him in wrong ways to justify their current wickedness. Bingo. That's the problem. That's what I'm trying to yeah. address. Yeah. Yeah. Prepare yourself and see how you come out. Yeah. Well, Abraham did that, so I can do that. Yeah. That's, that's the way they talk. Is it, is it wrong to say, the Bible says in Romans, the wages of sin. It's important to realize that word is singular. You don't go to hell because you're a pedophile. You don't go to hell because you, you do all things. You you no, you go to hell because you reject Jesus and you stay in your homosexuality. No, the, okay. reason, the reason the person is condemned to hell because he rejects Christ. No. And be, no. 
No. The well, pagan, the pagan in the middle of of of, the, of Africa never and see a tree and see he's a tree. Never preached the gospel to him. He's going to go to hell because he's because of sins. The Bible gives us lists and tells us because of these sins, you are going to go to hell. Specifically the, listing the sins. Yes, no. there's unbelief, but there are specific sins that will be judged. There are three reasons why someone might go to hell. The first reason is Adam sinned. The second reason is actual sin. Actual sin. And a, one of the parts of actual sin is hearing the gospel and rejecting it. But not everybody hears the gospel, but they do practice actual sin. So those are the reasons that we go to hell. We have no excuse. All right. Thank you all for coming. Let me pray and we'll close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We pray that you'll make this word bear fruit in us, uh, plant it deep in us and make it bear fruit. And may we produce fruit 160 and 30 fold for the glory of, of Christ and for the salvation we have. We thank you. We pray in his name. Amen.